Did you know that the Lewis and Clark expedition was an army unit on a military mission? Captain Meriwether Lewis and Lieutenant William Clark and 29 of 33 of the members of their permanent party were all soldiers. For more insights and discussion about the Lewis and Clark expedition, stay tuned. Welcome to the U.S. Army History and Heritage Podcast, the official podcast of the United States Army's Center of Military History. The Center of Military History writes and publishes the Army's official history, manages the U.S. Army Museum Enterprise, and provides historical support throughout the U.S. Army. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the United States Army History and Heritage Podcast. I'm Lee Reynolds, the Strategic Communications Officer for the Center of Military History. In this episode, we're going to examine the Lewis and Clark Expedition, and here to talk us through it is historian Dr. Glenn Williams. Welcome, Glenn. Good to be here, Lee. Good to see you. Good to see you again. And uh, I know I want to thank you. You've uh, you've been leading us through a lot of these discussions in the early Army history. And uh, so let's uh, just talk a little bit about you as we get started here. So Dr. Glenn Williams is a retired infantry officer and airborne ranger. Oh, well. He is a published author on the colonial and revolutionary war era and has extensive experience working in historical locations, including as the historian and curator at the USS Constellation in Baltimore Harbor with the National Park Service Battlefield Protection Program and as assistant curator for the Baltimore Civil War Museum and President Street Station. Dr. Williams has been a historian with the Center of Military History since 2004 and I think something we should talk about is one of your first jobs when you came into CMH is working with the bicentennial of the Lewis and Clark expedition. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I came to this job uh, as the project officer and historian for the Army Lewis and Clark Bicentennial Commemoration uh, in 2004. Um, it had already been begun, uh, but the uh, the then historian uh, was promoted to a different job, and I filled that position along with Lieutenant Colonel Mark Reardon. All right, so uh, great, great experience, and and you're really uh, the best subject matter expert for us to talk to about this Army-led expedition. So let's talk about the beginnings of this. I know it was Thomas Jefferson that contracted this. Um, so how did it all come about? Well, this followed the Louisiana Purchase. Um, Jefferson had arranged for the United States to purchase a large chunk of territory, what had been called, uh, been uh, a part of uh, Spain's colonies in North America uh, during the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, Jefferson's vision was to have an empire that stretched all the way to the Pacific, and this was a step in doing that. Uh, once the uh, purchase had been made. He wanted to know what was in this vast area, uh, what the, the, the vegetation and the animals, the people that inhabited it were like, and to try to find uh, the Northwest Passage to the Pacific. Ah, the Northwest Passage. I hear about that all the time. And uh, I guess we'll, we'll talk more about that later. But um, let's talk about now, um, why Meriwether Lewis? Why was he selected? Uh, Meriwether Lewis was a captain in the Army. Um, he served on the personal staff of the president, Jefferson, uh, at the time. And um, that's he was easy pick, of course. Uh, he had been a, he was a veteran of the Battle of Tippecanoe. 
Uh, and uh, he was asked uh, by Jefferson to put together a force uh, to lead and execute a reconnaissance uh, of the new territory. And uh, as part of that reconnaissance, were there specific things that President Jefferson said, these are, are key elements that I want to know? You kind of alluded to some before, but anything else? He really wanted to make contact with the peoples living there, the various nations and tribes of American Indians, um, to establish friendly relations with them if possible, uh, to study the flora and fauna uh, of the area and bring back examples and any other what they would have called curiosities in those days, who we would call artifacts today, uh, to give an idea of what was there. And um – um, all right, so this team, how did um, Lewis build the team to go? Well, first, Lewis asked for uh, permission to uh, contact one of his old Army buddies, uh, Mary uh, William Clark. Uh, the two served together in the old U.S. Legion, were both at the Battle of Tippecanoe, uh, specifically wanted him to go along. Uh, unfortunately for Clark, uh, the only available commission at the time was as a lieutenant, uh, in the artillery, uh, Lewis was an infantry officer. They had both been infantry officers before, although nobody knew he was only a lieutenant uh, because uh, Lewis always treated him as a co-captain. The soldiers all referred to him as captain. And then they had to recruit um, the rest of the uh, Corps of Western Discovery, as it was called. Mm-hmm. And um, – but – why Clark, I mean, other than being a friend, someone he could trust, did he bring any special skills that Lewis needed? Yeah, well, Clark was very expert in his knowledge of the Western frontier. He is the younger brother of George Rogers Clark of the Revolutionary War fame. He was also a, a surveyor and map maker. And in fact, he would be mapping uh, the route as they went. He also knew celestial and navigation, which uh, became very important. If you have a compass, you might know what direction you're going. Um, but without maps uh, of the area, which there were none at the time, you have to make your own. Uh, a surveyor and celestial navigation are very handy. But how effective was that? I mean, I'm, I'm guessing he used a sextant in addition to the compass. Sextant, a compass, uh, chains uh, uh, to, to measure distance, surveyor's chains. Um, he was so good at his job that um, modern geographers will tell you that none of his calculations were more than a quarter mile off. We're talking 1804, 1805, 1806. That's, that's incredible. Yeah, I mean, crossing the, the, the whole frontier, most of the country, and being that close, that's just uh, – wow. So, so Lewis knew what he was doing and choosing Clark. He knew Clark. what he was doing. Don't, don't get the idea that he's making one over 20,000 maps as he's going along. <laughs> These are basically strip maps, mm-hmm. but they have the correct readings of latitude, longitude, and degrees. And so he's making these along the way. Yes. All right. So now um, the rest of the team. The rest of the team are going to be composed mostly of soldiers. They do hire some French boatmen to get them as far as the St. Louis area. Uh, but L- Lewis stops at several army posts along the way, like Fort Massac. Um, they recruit soldiers from the um, 1st and 2nd Infantry Regiments and the Regiment of Artillery. They also recruit some volunteers, the most famous of whom are the nine young men of Kentucky, uh, who engage only for the time of the expedition. The other soldiers are in the army for their normal enlistments. And the team comes together on the banks of the Mississippi in what's now Illinois at uh, Camp River Dubois, uh, where they train and prepare and move off uh, in 2005, 2000, 1804. 
1804, and they started the expedition. And then um, those who are not army, uh, how would you um, describe them? Contractors? I think the best described as contractors uh, of the 34 members of the permanent party, not counting the baby that was born along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, the 29 are military members. Um, one is uh, William Clark's manservant or slave. Um, the so other, he brought a slave with him. He did bring his slave with him. And how was he treated? I mean, that's uh, his name was York. Uh, we know a lot about him. He was treated like any other member of the expedition. Even when they had to vote, he, was, he had the right to vote in any decision they made. Um, he carried a, an arm. He, ca- he was armed with a rifle the whole time. Mm-hmm. And he was very instrumental in a lot of things they did. He, he impressed the Indians, too. Oh, he wow. was a big guy. Oh. Uh, and, and then um, the other civilians, um, uh, George Doyar, uh, who is a scout and did most of the interpreting uh, with Indian nations. He was really helpful because he also knew Indian sign language. And then you had uh, Carboneau. Carboneau was a French trader um, who had some knowledge of Indian tribes, but more importantly, his wife, was Sakagawea, uh, who could speak Shoshone and a couple other Indian mm-hmm. languages. Uh, so she would be most helpful. In fact, they, they knew they were going to run into the Shoshone, and it would be helpful to have her along as well. And those three were considered what we would call Department of Army civilians these <laughs> days. They were on the payroll of the War Department. Now, um, you mentioned that President Jefferson wanted to reach out to the Native Americans, uh, the American Indians, I guess, and um, establish good relations. How did they do that? Was something prepared in advance? Well, yes. Uh, wherever they went, they were going to hold what are called councils. And, mm-hmm. and as part of Indian diplomacy is the exchange of gifts. And one of the gifts that the members of the expedition were provided were what were called peace medals, uh, medallions that the Indian leaders could wear, especially uh, struck by the U.S. Mint. In fact, uh, the two uh, government agencies involved in the expedition are, of course, the Army and the U.S. Mint. Wow, that's pretty fascinating. Do we? Um, do you know are uh, these available as artifacts anywhere today? Uh, there are in some museums. Please don't ask me which ones. Oh, I will. Okay. Uh, as is an air rifle that uh, the expedition carried along oh, with wow. it, which also uh, impressed the Indians because it could fire multiple shots without reloading. All right. Um, all right. So now let's let's talk a little bit more about the uh, the expedition. Um, what were some of the challenges that they faced along the way? Oh, several challenges. One, that they would go through the territory of several Indian nations or tribes. They had to have a way of communicating with them. So that's why they have Sacagawea. Well, where, where did they – you mentioned that she was married to, to one of them, but where, where did they actually meet her? Uh, they – Engage her uh, when they reach uh, the, the limit of a navigation on the Missouri River, uh, what's now Bismarck, North Dakota. Mm. Uh, there's a Mandan village there. Uh, she and Carboneau lived there. Um, she had. She was originally um, by nationality. She is a Shoshone Indian, but in the various wars between Indian nations, um, she was captured in a raid in which most of the other folks she was with were killed. Uh, she and I think one other woman were taken prisoner or captive um, and taken back to Hadatsa territory where she is eventually uh, sold or somehow acquired by the uh, Mandans. And while with the Mandans, um, she she marries uh, uh, Carboneau. And because mm-hmm. she has a connection to the Shoshone, um, that's the main reason why they hire her husband so she can come along too. <laughs> She's pregnant at the time, by the way, uh, and she'll give birth 
during the expedition. Oh, wow. All right. So then um, how did the encounters with the Indian nations go along the way? Yeah, along the way, uh, some of them went really well. Uh, the Indians that they would encounter were peaceful and friendly, some not so much. And that was one of the advantages to having Chicago Way along because uh, in Indian culture, a war party would not be uh, accompanied by a woman. Hmm. So even though this expedition were – armed men. Uh, they telegraphed their peaceful intention by having her along uh, along the way. Um, and during the, the course, uh, she may have helped uh, uh, translate on occasion, uh, especially when they got to the West Coast. And All right. So now let's talk about some of the challenges that they faced with the terrain. Um, was it easygoing? How challenging was it? Uh, I mean, the, they're on rivers. They're having to go across land, across mountains. Talk about that. Oh, they go by water as far as they can. Uh, and when they have to start going on land, they have to cross over the Bitterroot Mountains and into the Rockies. Uh, and that's going to be very tough. And they're carrying a lot of equipment with them. Uh, so they're going to need horses. And this is where Chicago Wea really plays an important part. Because when they get into Shoshone territory, uh, she encounters her long-lost brother, who is a Shoshone chief at the time. And they are able to establish instant rapport, uh, friendly relations, and are able to acquire horses from the Shoshone to, to make the trip uh, as into the, uh, the basin of the Columbia River much easier. And, you know, I remember reading um, a book, Undaunted Courage, um, about the, the core of discovery, right, the Lewis and Clark expedition. And one of the things that fascinated me was their interaction or the – I don't know if it's quite discovery, but interaction with some of the animals – the, um, that they encountered. Do you have any? Yeah, well, that's one of the things uh, that uh, uh, Jefferson was very interested in doing. In fact, they send back some live specimens, uh, prairie dogs, a hmm. uh, couple different kinds of birds that they send back uh, to Jefferson. Uh, and uh, they find uh, 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 artifacts uh, like the, the, the tusk of a mastodon. Uh, and learn a lot of things about what was in that western area that might not have been known before. Yeah, I, I remember an encounter or two um, with, with grizzlies. That kind of surprised them. Big encounter with a grizzly. In fact, Lewis has to fight him off with his espontoon, which is wow. the polearm that was not only a, a weapon but also the symbol of authority for an officer in those days. Uh, uh, that's amazing. <laughs> um, all right, so they're they're on this journey. You know, they're they're looking for the Northwest Passage. How is that going? Uh, they never do find a Northwest Passage. Uh, as they make their way over the mountains, uh, they're able to get back in the water when they reach the reach the Columbia, and continue the rest of the way to the Pacific. And they get to the Pacific. So I, they had two winters that they were gone, right? Because they were they were gone from o four to o six eighteen o four eighteen o six. Um, talk about the first winter. First winter is when they get to the Mandan area and they erect a fort. Wherever they stopped for more than a couple of days, they fortified. And when they stayed a winter, they erected a fort. <clears throat> the fort uh, in the Mandan area, they call Fort Mandan. They spend the winter there. <clears throat> they continue across the continent. When they reach the Pacific, <clears throat> They establish a post called Fort Clatsop, and that's where they spend the second winter. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> They're able to make the trip back to the Mississippi uh, without stopping again for mm -hmm. the winter. 
And Fort Clatsop, if I um, if I remember right, that's that's on the Pacific Ocean, right? <clears throat> very close to the ocean. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, they're able to um, send a detail of soldiers to the beach, uh, mm-hmm. where they erect a, a salt making uh, operation to mm-hmm. uh, boil sea salt from seawater because uh, they had run out of salt by that time. And uh-huh. these days, salt is not just a seasoning, but it's mm-hmm. how you preserve meat. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, when they would kill game, the only way to keep it is to salt it down. Yeah, so really their logistics was foraging. Their logistics is pretty much self-contained the whole way. Yeah. Uh, They also had a portable boat, by the way, uh, Mm -hmm. that they could disassemble. Uh, And uh, I mentioned the air rifle and Mm -hmm. and a couple other other things that were specifically taken by them. Uh, But other than that, it's what they found along the way. And they had to repair their uniforms as they were going, Mm -hmm. too. So in the the winter quarters – I imagine they spent their time, uh, I guess, we, uh, repairing uniforms, resting, map making, um, anything else? That they hunting. Hun- <laughs> hunting, of course, right? Establishing yeah. relations with the local Indians, mm-hmm. uh, finding what information they could uh, about the terrain and other people in the area uh, and um, things like that before they made their preparations to return. And throughout the whole expedition, did they lose anybody? Oh, yeah. Um, in fact, they started with seven more soldiers uh, than finished, uh, actually eight. Um, they had some discipline problems like any military unit, so mm-hmm. six of them were sent back uh, in the, the, the command under the command of a corporal who was trustworthy, uh, and he not only got them back to where they started, but he also carried some dispatches back to the president. Also, uh, Sergeant Floyd died. Uh, en route, uh, we think of appendicitis. Yeah. So they had to elevate one of the other NCOs. Uh, sergeant Ordway became the orderly sergeant, or today what we would call the first sergeant, because mm-hmm. uh, it was run like a company. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, that, that's how they, those that reduced the number of, of the permanent party to 33, 29 of whom were soldiers. And then, uh, so after the second winter, they wanted to make their way back. Uh, did they take the same route? No, they didn't follow the same route. In fact, um, uh, the two captains uh, led separate parties, detachments uh, that explored other parts of the, the region. Uh, if you've been out to Montana, the area of Pompey's Pillar uh, actually has a, a carving by the name of one of the officers in it. Um, they, that's on the Yellowstone, as a matter of fact. Uh, and so then they rejoined, uh, reunited the, the party back together to continue on back as one body. Yeah, that's that's really fascinating to me that they would have separated. Uh, I mean, just concerning the you know the day uh, that it was eighteen oh six, I guess at this point they separate and then they link back up at a certain uh, point in time and continue, yeah. and then then continue back. So w- when they get back, what was the reception like? People thought it had been like if we saw somebody coming back from the moon. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, they hadn't seen these guys for two years, didn't know whether they were alive or dead, except for the dispatches that uh, Corporal Worthington took back to Thomas Jefferson. Mm-hmm. Uh, other than that, they had no contact during those two years oh. at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it was a surprise, first, that they were alive, uh, <laughs> and second, that they were still together. Uh, mm-hmm. And they, they returned back to an Army garrison at uh, Fort LaFontaine, uh, which is north of St. Louis. Okay. And then eventually I got back to Washington, D.C. and met with uh, President well, Jefferson. The soldiers go back to their units. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the volunteers are discharged. And uh, Lewis and Clark continue back to either Washington or Monticello, one mm-hmm. or the other, to meet with Jefferson and present him with 
all the artifacts and examples of flora and fauna and other specimens that they had collected along the way. A lot of them are still on display at Monticello if you mm-hmm. go there. Yes, I visited Monticello and I have seen some of those there. Um, so let's talk about their report to President Jefferson. What were the successes and what were the failures? Well, the successes were that they encountered several Indian nations, most of whom were friendly. Uh, um, they had a couple rough spots. In fact, they have to join one of the friendly Indian tribes in helping to repel an attack by their enemies. Um, none of the soldiers were killed, fortunately. Um, and, of course, delivering the specimens and everything else and, and to give a report on what's on the other side of the Mississippi mm-hmm. all the way to the Pacific, although it's a very narrow trail that they took uh, to, to get there. So you know, some people think, well, that, that was the Oregon Trail. No, it wasn't. The Oregon Trail comes a couple decades later. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they do go from the, the head of navigation of the, of the Missouri all the way to the mouth of the Columbia. Wow. And then, so the failures, um, what part of their mission, what couldn't they accomplish? They could not accomplish finding the elusive Northwest Passage. Uh, That's probably the the biggest failure. Right. And because they didn't find it, did they just assume that there wasn't one or just that it wasn't on the route we found? Well, this would spark a number of other expeditions that the Army would lead into the new territory uh, one of them led by Zebulon Pike, who we talked about in the War of 1812, uh, who led a, a similar expedition. In fact, he gets captured by the Spanish because of the, where he wandered in the area that was still yeah. a Spanish colony. Uh, but a number of other army expeditions, army-led expeditions, like mm-hmm. Fremont later uh, before the beginning of the Civil War, uh, and, and several others. Um, and remember that West Point was just established in 1802, mm-hmm. uh, primarily as a school of engineering and artillery practice. Uh, so a lot of officers in the Army had training in topographic engineering. So they're mm-hmm. perfect pick for people to explore the West. And we talked earlier a little bit about Clark and his maps. So these maps that he used, how that he created, I should say, how long were they used? Uh, they were used by the first several expeditions that would follow. Mm-hmm. Um, but as more exploration was conducted, wider areas are covered. And, and so they're able to fit those in mm-hmm. to other maps to get a more, uh, get a better understanding of the, the new Western territory. Right. So, but his maps were really the basis for. For traveling, exploration for at least 20 more years. His maps are the first that we have mm-hmm. of that area. Um, Spanish might have had sun for down further southwest, but uh, up where the, um, where the expedition took place, there, there was nothing. And what's the lasting impact of the Lewis and Clark expedition? Uh, that it establishes the Army as not only uh, a force for fighting wars and defending the frontier, um, but also to contribute to the development of the United States through mm-hmm. exploration, uh, through map making, uh, uh, diplomacy with the Indian mm-hmm. nations. Uh, and and uh, um, they might have run into British officials. Uh, they didn't, but they could have because the British had traders on the west coast of what's now the United States as well. So it was a diplomatic mission as well as a military mission. I think that's a significant point because when we do talk about Army history and heritage, you know, the Army has contributed so much more to the United States than just fighting 
wars. Right. And, and you know, this is one of it, contributing to society in many ways. And, and, and I think this is a great example of that and certainly part of the lasting impact. Right. Well, but, of course, the Army was imbued. It's a, a cohesive organization with good leadership, good training, high morale uh, that can undertake any mission. Right. And um, so now the rest of the story. Uh, Lewis and Clark, um, what happens uh, um, after this ex- expedition? After the expedition, Clark returns to civilian life. He later becomes a territorial governor. Lewis will become a territorial governor eventually, too. Die of mysterious causes uh, hmm. as governor of Mississippi, I believe. Um, several of the soldiers are still serving during the War of 1812. Hmm. One of the enlisted men earns a commission and serves as a captain during the War of 1812. At least one, maybe two, were at the Battle of New Orleans. Hmm. Um, a couple others uh, become uh, uh, congressmen or senators, members, uh, oh, the wow. enlisted men of the expedition. Um, Sacago Wea, uh, her son Pompey, they called him Pompey, his name was Jean Baptiste. Hmm. Um, Clark, or rather Lewis, kind of takes an interest in him, becomes like a godfather to him, uh, takes care of uh, some of his needs as he's growing up. Um, uh, Clark uh, emancipates York, his slave, Mm. who goes into a freight hauling business. I believe he actually got started with um, Clark's help Mm -hmm. uh, and um, uh, that uh, kind of continues the story from there. Wow. (laughs) That's pretty interesting. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's good to hear about about Clark and, and... uh, the emancipation York. And, and York, yeah, fantastic. And I think another lasting impact here is uh, we, you know, part of Army history. Now we know of Fort Lewis and Washington. Fort Lewis State. and Washington is named after Lewis. And there's a statue both to Lewis, I believe, but also to Sergeant Ordway, the first sergeant. Oh, at Fort Lewis. At Fort Lewis. Oh, okay. And we always forget. Lewis's Labrador dog here, named Seaman, who went the whole way with the expedition. Oh, oh, terrific! <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, that's pretty cool. All right, so uh, you know the final part of these podcasts. I like to ask for a little bit of a hua trivia, or I guess still huzzah trivia in that era. So, do you have anything to share with us about the Lewis and Clark expedition? Yes, if nothing else, uh, it's usually misrepresented, but the way the the characters are dressed. But we hmm. can the Lewis and Clark expedition, the core of Western discovery, like you mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. was an army unit. On a military mission, uh, one of my colleagues liked to, to say that it's the Army's longest dismounted, unopposed strategic reconnaissance in Army history. Uh, but they wore uniforms the whole time. Uh, most of the time they wore their fatigue, what we would call fatigue uniforms, mm-hmm. was basically the, um, the hunting frock. Mm-hmm. But whenever they had a council with the Indians, they put on their regimentals and, uh, and paraded mm-hmm. uh, just like they would for any other dignitary or head of mm-hmm. state. Uh, and they maintained that discipline. Like I said, there, there were some court martials along the way. The mm-hmm. troublemakers were sent home. Wow. Um, but it remained a, an army unit. 30, uh, 29 of the 33 members of the permanent party were soldiers. And of the four civilians, three of them were on the War Department's payroll. Well, great. Well, thank you so much. That's, that's a lot of information. And I think it's fascinating learning more about uh, Lewis and Clark. So thank you, Glenn, for joining us again. Thanks for having me. Yeah, your great insights and discussion on the Army-led Lewis and Clark Expedition, Corps of Western Discovery. Thanks so much, Glenn. Appreciate you coming in again. Thank you. And if anyone wants to learn more about Army history, I encourage you to explore our website at history.army.mil. And we do have a a, uh, one pamphlet 
That's just specifically about the Corps of Discovery and the Lewis and Clark expedition. So you can find that at history.army.mil. And if you want to experience Army history every day, then visit our social media sites on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and make sure you like and share them so that we can get more people excited about Army history. And join us every week on this podcast for more in-depth discussions about Army history as we cover topics from all eras of the U.S. Army. And if you love Army history, you don't want to miss an episode. So thanks for joining us today on the United States Army History and Heritage Podcast. For the Center of Military History, I'm Lee Reynolds. And until next time, we're history. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or opinions of the U.S. Army or Department of Defense. For more information about the Army's proud history and heritage, go to history.army.mil.com.